The story of the nuclear button is kind of a fable. Except in this fable, we don't all live happily ever after. In the story, there's a big red button on the president's desk. The nuclear button. When the president pushes the button, anytime, for any reason, boom. That's it. The president has total and complete control over the bomb. No second vote required. No need to ask or really even tell Congress. Okay, so there isn't actually a button button. The button symbolizes our decision to place the power of our nuclear arsenal at the fingertip of a single person. President Biden can order a nuclear war just like you order takeout on the phone. The only safeguard is that he has to prove it's really him. He has to read a little code off a little card. Does it sound crazy that it's this easy? That it's down to the whim of one person? Yeah, it's crazy. And in 1981, a man named Roger Fisher took this insane setup to its logical conclusion. Fisher was a professor at Harvard Law School and renowned for his research on how to negotiate. Here he is in 1983 giving a speech talking about how we deal with other countries. We love a confrontational approach to conflict. It is fun. Now, at home, we know it doesn't work. But if you're just shooting down some Libyan jets or calling Soviets liars and cheats, that's terrific. It's kind of the John Wayne approach to the world. High noon, shoot them out at the OK Corral. It's a cowboy approach. Fisher was fascinated not just by the John Wayne approach, our desire to blow things up and shoot things down, but by how we chose to make it all so easy, like ordering a pizza. That's how Fisher got to thinking about the nuclear button. Or, rather, that little card with the little code given to the president. Fisher made a modest proposal in an effort to get to the heart of the problem, if you will. He did this in the pages of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Let me read a passage to you. My suggestion was quite simple. Put that needed code number in a little capsule, and then implant that capsule right next to the heart of a volunteer. The volunteer would carry with him a big heavy butcher knife as he accompanied the president. If ever the president wanted to fire nuclear weapons, the only way he could do so would be for him to first, with his own hands, kill one human being. The president says, George, I'm sorry, but tens of millions must die. He has to look at someone and realize what death is, what an innocent death is. Blood on the White House carpet. Fisher goes on. When I suggested this to friends in the Pentagon, they said, my God, that's terrible. Having to kill someone would distort the president's judgment. It didn't occur to Fisher's friends that the president's judgment was already distorted. Distorted by our current setup that sanitizes the decision to kill millions of people at the push of a proverbial button. His butcher knife cut right through that. We're against aggression, so we have nuclear weapons. We're against nuclear war, so we have arms control. It's time we focused our attention on what we do want to have happen and how we do want to deal with these people who are so difficult and threatening and dangerous. It's time we understand how we want to interchange, and that is successful negotiation. How we want to deal is where we're talking with them and they're talking with us, and where we're listening to them. Unfortunately, 40 years later, 
we are still making the same choices. I should know. I'm a professor who studies nuclear weapons and how to stop countries from building them. On a good day, I'm kind of like a detective, looking at satellite images, trying to find secret nuclear sites from space. On a bad day, I sit in really long Zoom meetings where diplomats palaver back and forth. Today, what I really care about is how the new president, Joe Biden, is going to get us out of this mess with Iran. My name is Jeffrey Lewis, and you're listening to season two of The Deal. If you're just finding us, season one told the story of the Iran nuclear deal, how it came together, how it fell apart, and why all of it matters. You don't have to listen to season one to follow season two, but it helps, and it's awesome. You should totally check it out. In season two, we're bringing the story into the present. We'll examine the options available to Joe Biden by looking at the past. Will we make the same mistakes, or have we learned our lessons? This is episode one. It was no secret that Joe Biden, on the campaign trail, was enthusiastic about the Iran nuclear deal. He helped put the thing together with Barack Obama in 2015. Here he is in 2020. And find a way to avoid the onrush of war. And the best way to do that, of course, would be for President Trump to rejoin the Iran deal and build on it. When Joe Biden was a senator, he was a leading voice for diplomacy as a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And after that, in 2015, Biden was, of course, the vice president when the Obama administration agreed to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, a.k.a. the JCPOA, a.k.a. the Iran nuclear deal. So he knows the ins and outs of our diplomacy with Iran, and he has some old frenemies he's going to be back in business with, people like Javad Zarif, Iran's foreign minister. Zarif and Biden go way back to the very beginning of the nuclear crisis more than a decade ago. Here's Zarif with a Russia Today journalist on how he thinks the history between him and Biden will play out. You've known Joe Biden for many years, perhaps even decades. I've read somewhere that he has your personal cell phone number. Do you think Actually, that Actually, my personal cell phone number has changed since I left oh, New York. So well, maybe you can uh, <laughs> fax your new one to him again. But do you think that... that uh, personal connection. I don't know how deep it is, but do you think it will facilitate uh, any diplomatic activity uh, between Let me countries? make it clear. Joe Biden and I were not buddies. We represented two different countries with different policies. He was a senator and I was a permanent representative to the United Nations. Uh, we had many civilized meetings uh, in which we disagreed but with civility. Um, and I, I think that is the basis for uh, understanding. Biden inherits a mess from Trump. The fact that he maybe had Javad Zarif's digits at one point isn't really much to start with. Trump abandoned the deal in 2018. He reimposed sanctions on Iran that damaged the Iranian economy. Saboteurs blew up an Iranian nuclear facility in the summer of 2020 and then assassinated a leading Iranian nuclear scientist. All the while, Iran kept stepping back from one part of the nuclear deal after another. At one point in this mess, the U.S. assassinated an Iranian general. Iran responded with a huge missile attack on a U.S. base that wounded hundreds of American soldiers. 
Things got so tense that a hyped-up Iranian missile crew shot down one of their own civilian airliners. 176 innocent people died in the crash. When I look back on it, it's really just luck that we didn't go to war with Iran. But now, Biden is in office. He's signing executive orders and rolling out plans. And assembling a team to restore our reputation internationally. This is where what Biden is going to do with Iran starts to get more complicated. Next, the confirmation hearing for Tony Blinken, the Biden administration. Here's Anthony Blinken, the new Secretary of State, answering a question from a senator. Would you commit to re-entering the JCPOA without any preconditions as a starting point so long as the Iranians return to all of their commitments as well? What the president-elect has said on that, Senator, is that if Iran uh, returns to compliance with the JCPOA, uh, we would do the same thing and then use that as a platform, working with our allies and partners to build... Blinken is appearing before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Biden's old other, stomping uh, ground. Having said that, I think we're, we're some ways uh, from, from even that. Uh, there is a lot that Iran would need to do to come back into... And here's Avril Haines, Biden's body. nominee to be Director of National Intelligence, at her confirmation hearing before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Obviously, the president-elect has indicated that if Iran were to come back into compliance, that... Uh, that he would direct that we do so as well. And I think, frankly, we're a long ways from that. And, uh, you know, and I think... Notice anything similar? I think, frankly, we're a long ways from that. We're we're some ways uh, from, from even that. Biden's team is suddenly being really careful. They all seem to want to put the deal back together, but they're also being really cautious. So is Iran. If they return to the deal with full effect benefiting the Iranian people, knowing that their policy of maximum pressure has already failed, then we are willing to go back to the full terms of the deal. Both sides say they want back in the deal, but there is a standoff. Who goes first? If it seems like Washington and Tehran are making this harder than it needs to be, well, they are. We knew this was not going to be an easy path back to the deal. This is Corey Hinderstein. Even though her job is basically to prevent a nuclear war, like many people, she's been working from home during the pandemic. I have like a mobile desk because I have to go to different rooms all the time in my house. And my mobile desk is a bag with all my in it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Corey works for a think tank called the Nuclear Threat Initiative in Washington, D.C., I look at issues that are related to the peaceful uses of nuclear energy and how that intersects with national security, international security, nuclear proliferation concerns. You were also the breakout star of season one of The Deal. (laughs) Okay. Excellent. Let's talk about how things are broken. Can you walk me through the mess that Biden inherits. If you had to sit down and brief the president and say, when you left office, things looked okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, You are back in office and things look very different. Yeah. Some people say it's not as easy as just re-entering the deal. Yes. But I think some people also want it to be hard so we don't have to do it. I think the opponents of the deal come from a number of different places, and some of them are well-intentioned and some of them are not. First, we don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon, full stop. We also don't want them to come close to a nuclear weapons capability. And in that sentence, we now have a lot of things that we can start debating about. What does it mean to be close? 
What does it mean to have a capability? It's easy in a speech to say, we don't want Iran to develop a nuclear weapons capability. It's a lot harder to develop a technically justifiable and politically sellable definition for that. From my perspective, I, I don't I don't think as many of the arguments are are in good faith as as you do. And, you know, for me, it seems to me that a lot of what people are saying is really just letting the best be the enemy of the good. You know, my sense is that they're promising a better deal so that we don't have to take the one that's right in front of us. Can we as a country reach diplomatic agreements anymore? Will we ever ratify a treaty? Will we ever have a Democratic president make an agreement that a Republican president doesn't walk away from? Like, or is this like school shootings? You know, just something that is broken about our country that we don't know how to fix. Is our system broken? I I refuse to believe it. And I may be delusional. It wouldn't be the first time that I was accused of being too optimistic or Pollyannish, but I don't know any other way to look out at the world and still get up in the morning. I think that we have gotten to a place where we define U.S. interests as personal interests. And we've seen this with mask mandates. (laughs) We've seen this with all sorts of issues where, you know, the the American ethos of personal freedom um, somehow has gotten bigger than the collective good. I mean, I'm sad to say I think the thing that would bring us together more than anything else is, you know, Iran demonstrating a nuclear weapons capability. We have a little game we're playing. Oh, no. It's it's called Complete This Sentence. So, ready? Mm-hmm. The best scenario is? Iran and the United States are both in compliance with the JCPOA as it was created by June 17th. The worst case scenario is? Iran decides it has no interest in doing business with the United States anymore, and we can't be trusted. Does that end like North Korea? Probably. The United States had a deal with North Korea, too. One negotiated by a Democratic president and then abandoned by his Republican successor. That led to the current situation where North Korea is testing nuclear weapons that can reach the United States. It's like I always say, if you like a nuclear-armed North Korea, you are going to love walking away from the Iran deal. Corey's not so sure. Well, the real answer is Iran... If Iran wanted a nuclear weapon, they would have done it by now. Iran is trying to forge its own path. And that path right now is not about a nuclear weapon or nuclear weapons capability. But what I worry is not that Iran becomes the next North Korea. What I worry about is Iran becomes the first Iran and shows that there is a credible path towards a high level of nuclear capability with a lot of capacity, but not enough to invoke the ire of the world against them. You know, hedging their bets against nuclear weapons. If Iran demonstrates that that is feasible and beneficial, that's a path others might want to go down. That worries me more. For me, the fundamental question of the series is, as Biden 
surveys this situation. The, the question about that that I have is, why do we, as a country, prefer violent and belligerent solutions that don't work to diplomatic ones that often do? The thing that sticks in my mind is, people are incredibly excited if a scientist is killed or if a, if a building is blown up. But those things don't have a substantial long-term impact on Iran's nuclear program. You know, people loved Stuxnet. It delayed the program by a couple of months. And so, you know, it's like that sexist meme, right, with the, the boyfriend with the wandering eye. <laughs> what, yeah. what is it about these solutions that don't work that makes them so much more attention-getting than the ones that do? Like, why is that? Why are we like that? I think you're right, first of all. I think your your hypothesis is right that people like those kinds of actions. But I also think it's because we're not good as human beings about thinking big and intangible. And I don't blame somebody for, you know, wanting the foreign policy equivalent of the laboratory marshmallow test. A little kid will stare at a marshmallow and be told, I'm going to leave the room. You can either have this marshmallow or if you don't eat it by the time I get back, you can have two marshmallows and they'll eat the marshmallow. They know that it would be better to have two marshmallows later, um, but they can't resist eating one marshmallow now because it's here now. It's in front of us. It's tangible. We understand it. The second marshmallow is conceptual. And in this case, we feel so impotent. We just want to do something. And sitting around conference rooms is not something. And, you know, flying back and forth to Vienna five times in a month is not something. But disrupting something, breaking something, smashing something, or sadly killing someone is something. I'm so excited I get another nuclear weapons program to study. <laughs> no, we should not be wishing for these <laughs> things. <laughs> I'm not here to fix problems. I'm just here to narrate the collapse. Okay, that's too cynical. But something does bug me. I think Biden wants back in the deal. So why are they screwing around? This question of who goes first, the U.S. or Iran, that can be solved if that's what the parties want. So this season is about the options available to Joe Biden. We're looking at the past to try to understand the present with one really big question in mind. Why have we made the choices we have? Why have we been so excited about attacks that don't really slow down the Iranians, but then acted so embarrassed about diplomatic agreements that did? Why does the Biden administration feel the need to be so cautious about something that is so obviously in our interest? It's the same question that puzzled Roger Fisher. Why do we behave so belligerently? Why do we make threats as a negotiating process when we know that when they make threats, when they build more missiles than they should, we react belligerently? Why do we paint the world as simply divided between good guys and bad guys? 
I don't know either, Roger. But in season two, we're going to try to find out. The Deal is produced by me, Jeffrey Lewis, along with Aaron Davis, Juliette Luini, and Nikki Stein. Our original score is by Hannes Brown, who also mixes the episodes. Special thanks to Jessica Varnum and the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and Middlebury College. Subscribe to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, you can rate and review the show and listen to season one. I'm Jeffrey Lewis. Thanks for listening.